The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Today we look at what the Bible says about gray areas. Actually, what I put there was what the Bible says about gray areas and legalism, because legalism plays into it. I could have put what the Bible says about gray areas, legalism, and permissiveness, but the title was too long, and I didn't want to sound like a Puritan. They usually have very long titles. Uh, so we could just keep it at what the Bible says about gray areas. What are gray areas, you might ask? Well, there are many things about the Christian life, in terms of practical living, that are not explicitly stated in Scripture. Some might say, whoa, I thought you said the Bible was sufficient for everything. Well, yeah, it is. I thought truth was black and white. Well, yeah, it is. But the statement I just made is still true. There are many things about the Christian life that are not explicitly stated in Scripture. For example, the Bible doesn't say we should start the worship service at 11 o'clock. The Bible doesn't say we should sit down in pews as opposed to folding chairs. Uh, so these areas that the Scripture doesn't explicitly address, these are usually areas of liberty or Christian freedom, also, also commonly known as gray areas. Not clearly black or white. Things like the style of music we have in church. That's been a big one. Our choices of entertainment as Christians. Methodologies of how we do ministry. Those, those three are very specific that I just mentioned because I've seen churches divided, argue, split over those three issues. Uh, the list goes on. Unfortunately, it's in these areas that Christians can easily get divisive with one another because their convictions can be so strong. And, being div- and Christians being divisive with each other grieves Christ. And it, act- it inhibits the Spirit of God. It squelches the Spirit, having a divisive spirit. So instead, especially in these gray areas, we need to pursue peace and edification or building up one another, which... Paul clearly tells us we're going to see that in Romans 14. So gray areas, issues we have to deal with that are a part of our life that may or may not be clearly stated in Scripture. To help you out, uh, I've got a list. So run, listen carefully as I just run through this. Don't try to run it, write them down. But I just thought of a whole bunch of areas in my 20 plus years of working in the church, being a pastor, serving in different churches, uh, so getting a very broad, long perspective These are actual real scenarios and issues and topics that have come up in my years of experience as a pastor or working at a church where Christians squabbled over and became divisive about and had very strong convictions about in all of these areas. And I'm going to try to state these in a a similar way so that uh, the answer, the same answer is required for all of them. Uh, so, And I broke it up into three different categories. Gray areas in daily living or personal life. Gray areas regarding holidays. And gray areas regarding church ministry or methodology. And there's more. That's just kind of how I lumped it. So let me ask you some questions. And just think through in your own personal mind. Start with yourself, not somebody else. And don't answer out loud. Answer in your own mind. Okay? First, the category of daily living and personal life. Is smoking cigarettes a sin? Is it wrong for women to wear pants? Instead of a skirt all the time. Is it wrong to have your nose pierced as a Christian? Is it wrong to drink alcohol ever? Is it wrong for Christians to buy lottery tickets? Is it wrong for Christians to gamble? Is it wrong for Christians to dance? Is it wrong for Christians to listen to secular music? 
Is it wrong for Christians to go to movies? Is it wrong for Christians to see rated R movies? Uh, Is it wrong for Christians to let their kids watch Star Wars? Is it wrong for Christians to let their kids read Harry Potter? Is it wrong for Christians to listen to rap? Is it wrong for Christians to play cards? Is it wrong for Christians to own expensive cars? Is it wrong for Christians to eat meat? Again, I'm not making these up. These are real-life scenarios I've encountered with believers before that caused a problem. Is it wrong for Christians to let their kids play video games? Is it wrong for Christians to watch anime? Is it wrong for Christians to let their wives work outside the home? If you said yes to any of those questions, well, I better not answer that. Uh, If you said yes to any of those questions, you could maybe have a prohibitive conscience in that specific area to which you said yes to, or maybe you battle with legalism, but not necessarily. It just, it's curious. It's interesting. You need a context to answer. I'm not saying these, any, the answer should be yes or no. But I'd just be curious to see how you answer it in your own mind. Because um, in my own mind, I would have answered yes, no, maybe, it depends. I couldn't have given, given a specific answer on every one of those. Okay, holidays. Is it wrong for Christians to have a Christmas tree? Because I know Christians who think it is wrong to have a Christmas tree, just so you know. Is it wrong for Christians to dye Easter eggs? Is it wrong for Christians to have a pumpkin? You know, God made pumpkins. He did. It's, you know, carving them up and what kind of face you make, that's the issue. Is your pumpkin a Christian pumpkin or a satanic one? Is it wrong for Christians to let their their kids go trick-or-treating? I served at a church. I was an elder at a church where pretty much that was, that was our rule. You do not go trick-or-treating. You do not celebrate Halloween. Uh, as a matter of fact, you turn all the lights off. You leave your house. You go to a restaurant. And that way kids aren't coming to, to your house to get candy and Halloween so that you're not compromising and celebrating in the works of the devil. I, I was an elder and a pastor at a church that believed that and held to that. I'm not going to tell you what I believe today. But I have been a firm believer for many years in giving out or getting free candy. But... Um, <laughs> That is a different issue. Is it wrong for Christians to let their kids dress up for Halloween? Okay, now regarding church ministry and methodology. This could even be more divisive. I remember when we started this church five years ago, and Mike Birchfield down at West Hills Community Church was setting the vision, uh, laying out a plan very specifically. Here's what you need to do. Here's what you don't need to do. Here's the order in which you need to do it. Here's who you need to have. And it was a very helpful punch list. And one of the key things he had on that list that I still have to this day, he says, before you start your church, if you want to be blessed by God, if you want to have and preserve unity, one of the things you need to do is you need to take a position that will deal with gray areas when they come up, and you need to take a position ahead of time, especially in the area of methodology of ministry. And he gave specific examples that were very divisive in church-wide movements all across this country, and they have been for decades. And he gave examples. Specific examples he gave was, should you have Sunday school classes or not? Should your Sunday school classes be age segregated or not? Because churches and Christians fight over those. These are not clearly stated in Scripture. These are preferences. These are gray areas. So Mike was helping us think that through. Great point that he pointed that out. Um, And we need to be on the same page before we even go there. So that's just an example of what I'm talking about is gray areas regarding church ministry or church methodology. Uh, is the organ more appropriate than the electric guitar in church? Don't answer that out loud because you might hurt somebody's feelings or make somebody mad. 
is the organ more appropriate than the electric guitar in church? I shared this with uh, a church, the same list, about 10, 13 years ago. And I was surprised at the answers that I was getting on these questions. We shared them out loud. And there was a, several people that said, absolutely, the organ is more spiritual than the electric guitar. Um, is it wrong to have drums in church? Is singing from hymnals more spiritual than singing from the overhead or off the wall? Some people call that off-the-wall music. Are spontaneous prayers better than written prayers when you're up front praying for the church? Is it wrong for churches to have ministry programs? Encountered people in the past, previous churches, they just thought the word program was worldly. I was like, okay, then don't call it a program. It's not a youth program, it's a youth ministry. Does that make you feel better? For some reason, they didn't, they didn't like the word program. Uh, does children's church break up the family unit? I've had to deal with that one, especially at a previous church, where I was hired by the church and the elders to move hundreds of miles to that church as the pastor of family and children's ministry to implement children's ministry things and to do things like VBS, Awana, and children's church. And when I was doing what I was called to do, got this great resistance from half of the elders. No, you can't do that. We don't want children's church here. I was like... Oh, I thought that's why you hired me. That's what's in my job description. Oops, we should have talked about this two years ago. Um, so that comes up all the time, these kind of issues. Is it wrong? Debbie and I were reading uh, one very well-known, famous, respected evangelical Christian pastor who will remain nameless. I'm not going to say his name. But has published this extensive brochure and disseminates it wherever he can to evangelical churches condemning children's church in any form. It is worldly. It is a compromise. It is romper room and it serves no purpose in the church. And we're reading through this thinking, well, the way he describes it, yeah, who'd want that at their church? Just this Chuck E. Cheese while the adults go to church? That isn't what children's church at GBF is. It's learn the Bible, pray, worship God, complement the convictions of the parents and the church and the doctoral statement of GBF. So it comes down sometimes to how you define things. Uh, are age integration classes and groups more spiritual than same age groups? That's one Mike Birchfield mentioned to us. Does having more than one worship service hour break up the unity of the church? I know pastors who believe that. Well, we've got to stay at one service. And if we keep growing, then we just got to get a bigger facility because we can't go to two worship hours. That divides the church. And uh, so a very well-known pastor believes that. He's written on it, preaches on that. So GBF, you know, if we get two... Big, you can't go to two hours, an early service and later service, that would divide up the unity of your church. And then there are other churches that say, absolutely not. We've got three services, Calvary Chapel with a, one of the great pastors down in Southern California, not Chuck Smith, but another one that I know. Um, they have like six services. He preaches at all of them, and God's blessing their church. So you've got to be real careful here when it comes to preferences. Uh, is it wrong to have a soloist up front in the church? I, I worked at a church that believed that because they called it exhibitionism. Uh, is Awana unspiritual? I've worked at a church that believed that. Should Christians boycott public schools? I know Christians who believe that to this day. I also know Christians who say that you should only send your kids to a public school because you're supposed to be salt and light in the world. And they fight and squabble about that. 
our life groups better than Bible studies, and on and on and on it goes. So uh, probably one or maybe several of those issues resonated with you as a Christian. Maybe it's something you're struggling through right now, thinking through, grappling with, or maybe you've had to deal with it in the past. Debbie and I had a fun time this week talking about this, the gray areas. Debbie and I, we've been together for 25 years. Uh, going out, uh, the three years it finally uh, took me to convince her to like me, and then the 22 years we've been married, that's 25 years. Um, and so we've been very close and had convictions. And so we kind of evaluated our own convictions in the gray areas this week. Where do we stand today? And it's kind of interesting. We don't stand in the same, we don't believe the same thing today that we did 25 years ago or 10 years ago or some on the issues of even five years ago. We have changed our views on some of these things. In some areas we've become more, less permissive. And in other areas we've become more permissive. And I think in some of those areas, that was a good change. In some of those areas, it was a bad change. It's, we got a little lax. Uh, one of the areas that's good that we have changed from our perspective is we have become, over time, we've become more patient, merciful, gracious, forgiving towards people, towards fellow sinners and differences we have with them. Because we believe that's God teaching us over years, you ain't so hot yourself. We all stumble in many ways. We need to be like Jesus and be gracious and patient and merciful and compassionate with sinners. And so that was good to see where areas where we have hopefully grown in the Lord in that. And there are other areas where we have changed and we think, well, maybe not necessarily for the better. Wow, we better shore up things. And that's in the area, at least one area, in the area of parenting. When you have multiple children and they're spread years apart, uh, we saw a change from the first child we raised to the like the later years and the last child we raised in some areas we've lowered our standard or compromised or man we're just tired of being consistent this is hard work go ahead do what you want come home at 1230 I don't care if you're seven years old <laughs> so it was it was a good healthy exercise for us uh, and it was just a good reminder, all of us as Christians need to evaluate that delicate balance of being too legalistic or too critical, especially in the gray areas, areas of preference, balanced with being too permissive and, and really flaunting your liberty. And you've got to walk the fine line, and the only way you can do that is prayer, seeking God's face, the dynamic relationship you have with the indwelling Holy Spirit of God who's supposed to lead believers, uh, accountability from other godly counselors. It's, it's dynamic in life. It's not black and white. It's hard work. You've got to stay on it. You've got to stay fresh. You've got to stay humble before God, sensitive to His Spirit. So this is huge. By the way, these gray areas, I've been pastoring in churches for all these years. I've said that, you know, six different churches over 20 years and so I've seen just about all of it, of what Christians fight about. I've lived through three church splits at three different churches. By the way, I didn't cause those splits, but uh, a couple of times kind of as a spectator. And as I go back and evaluate and I think, wow, what caused that church split? What caused that small faction of people to get mad and leave? And I, can't, I don't think it was ever over blatant, explicit sin. If it could narrow it down, it seemed like it always came down to some preferential matter. One church in particular pretty much split and had a faction leave solely over the music issue, the, mu the style of music in the church, and the style of their preacher. Those were the two issues. 
And we haggled over this for nine months. Okay, what's the problem? What kind of, st- okay, so it came down to, you don't like the style of our music and you don't like the personality and the style and the delivery of the preacher. The preacher preaches truth. He's a little monotone, but it's truth. It's God's word. It's clear. And that's what it came down to. And whoosh, church split. It was sad. It was ugly. It was terrible. And then the other two churches where the same thing, little faction left, uh, was over those preferential issues. And at the heart of it really was usually two guys who just don't get along. There aren't even explicit sin issues. And that grieves Christ. So we've got to guard against this. And as a pastor, I love getting questions from people to try to search the Bible with them to see what God has to say in His Word. But the overwhelming amount of and kinds of questions that I get from people aren't questions like, uh, Pastor, is it wrong to uh, steal? Or, Pastor, is it wrong to lie? Pastor, is it wrong to do whatever, you know, those kind of explicit, they don't ask those questions. Pastor, uh, should I pray? Pastor, should I trust God more? I mean, those are like no-brainers. Christians don't ask those questions. The questions are these gray area questions. Many times they're very hard, and a lot of times I can't give a yes or no answer. It's like, wow, we need to think through Scripture. We need to think through biblical principles. We need to think through the specific situation. So that's the goal right now is to give you a paradigm by which to think through these, at times, very difficult issues. Many times these are preferences. Steve Fernandez came to visit our elders just as the church was beginning. He's a pastor up in Vallejo. He's been there 30 years, Community Bible Church, wonderful man of God. He's worked with a team of elders for 30 years. He's seen a lot. He's lived through a, a church split right at the heart of it and lived to tell about it. And he exhorted our elders and told us, one thing, if I could leave you guys with one thing after he spent two hours with the elders, one thing you need to really keep in mind to preserve unity at the elder level is to make clear distinctions between preferences and biblical matters. Because if you're going to harp and gripe and whine and be divisive over non Biblical issues and issues of preference, you're going to grieve the Spirit of God and you're going to have a needless split on your hands. Do not do that. So that was a great shot in the arm from Steve, and he hits hard. Uh, Pastor Steve, that was like four years ago. I've never forgotten that. And I'm in contact with him today, thanking him for that exhortation. And that's true of all these issues. You have got to cut through the fog and what are the biblical issues? What is the violation of Scripture here? Clearly. And that will be really helpful. So let's go ahead. I'm going to, I just want to read, in light of that, I want to read through first uh, Romans chapter uh, 14, verses 1 through 23. And I'm not going to explain it verse by verse, but I want to give us a context because the reason Paul wrote Romans 14 was to deal with gray areas in that church. Because you had a mix of people. You had people who got saved from different backgrounds. You had people and Christians with different sensibilities, different experiences, and they were all thrown together as the body of Christ. And you got a whole bunch of very different people trying to live together in unity. And that is hard. So you need guiding principles. And one of the things that's going to inhibit unity is our personal preferences. And many times those personal preferences stem from, grow out of our personal experiences and our personal backgrounds. And all of our experiences, upbringing backgrounds is different from everybody else. My wife and I, we have totally different backgrounds. And that affects our personalities, our convictions, our lifestyles, our worldviews, everything. So that there are times, every once in a while, we actually have an argument in our marriage. I don't know if that happens to you, but every once in a while. Nice little soft conversation over a difference. And so that's what Paul is addressing here. He realizes we've got the body of Christ. There's a great mix. There's Jews and Gentiles, first of all. And then there's men and women. Whoa, look out together as well. And then you've got all these 
uh, people who got saved out of paganism, who were the Gentiles with a background. Many of these pagans who got saved, these Gentiles, they were into idol worship. They literally worshipped all kinds of Greek gods, Greek idols that were involved in gross immorality. A lot of that had to do with false worship, idols that were used, uh, meat and festivals that were used. They'd have banquets and parties uh, that were immoral orgies, worshipping some false god. And there was food that went along with that. And then they get saved. And then now they've got a clear conscience. They've been saved by Christ. They see the truth. And then when they see some of that food that they used to engage in back when they were being immoral, it affects their conscience. They feel guilt. They have a prohibitive conscience. And they attach that meat with their sinful, wicked, evil behavior. And therefore they think that the meat is inherently sinful when really, no, it's not. It was the practice that was associated with it at the time. And so this Christian struggles with meat that was once dedicated to an idol in light of their religious upbringing. It's like somebody maybe who grew up in the occult and seances and witchcraft, a very deep degree. And then they become a Christian. And now that they're a Christian, they are very hypersensitive to any inkling of any occult belief or system that filters in either to the public domain or the world or even into Christianity and they're hypersensitive to it and they see it and others don't. Like with Star, uh, Star Wars, the first one, where you've got the light and the dark and the, and the, the, the force and the darkness and there, there are overtones and undertones of the occult and Hinduism in woven throughout Star Wars. Clearly, that's the ideology behind it. And most Americans, uh, they're oblivious to it. Oh, that was cool. That was entertaining. I want to go see it again. Where somebody with that sensitive conscience knows, wow, here's uh, George Lucas's background. He was influenced by Hinduism and the New Age, and he was. And it shows uh, another example might be Harry Potter, where somebody who came out of that background, very sensitive to these inclinations of witchcraft and sorcery that are in Harry Potter, and they have a hypersensitive conscience to it. Not even hypersensitive, just a sensitive conscience to the reality of it and seeing it. So uh, people have different backgrounds. So you had... Pagans, Greeks, who became Christians, who had that background, but you also, regarding food, you had Jews who got saved in the Roman church, possibly, who were Jews abroad. And maybe some of these Jews used to practice the Old Testament law as Moses gave it, and Moses gave all these laws from God where they were to abstain from certain kinds of food, like pork. And now they've become a Christian. And based on their upbringing, they still have a problem eating pork. They think it is inherently unclean. And so here they are in the Roman church. And maybe they're having a fellowship meal after church at the Roman church. And somebody has the gall to serve pork. And this Jew who became a Christian has a sensitive conscience towards pork. And they think it's unclean. And it is wrong. And it violates their conscience. And then there are other Jews who got saved and they understand what Jesus said to Peter. Peter, rise, kill and eat. You can eat the pig. Bacon is good. God made it. There's nothing wrong with it. There's a new era. The Mosaic Law has been superseded by the new covenant in Jesus Christ. You're free now to eat bacon again. And they understand that truth. And they, their conscience has been properly informed in accordance with scriptural revelation that's been given by God. And as a result, they aren't bothered when they eat pork or see it. And so you've got this mix of all these different sensibilities and sensitivities to conscience where people don't always agree in the gray areas. That's what we're talking about. And no doubt, every single one of us has areas where we are sensitive or hypersensitive about a certain conviction. So let's go with that background. Let's look and see what Paul says. How do all these people get along? How's GBF going to get along with all these different sensibilities and sensitivities to different convictions that are on a personal gray area level? Well, it starts with this. Christian, 
Every single one of us that's a believer. Now, except the one, except the fellow believer in your local church who is weak in faith. Who is weak in faith? That's the topic. That is the person being talked about in the entire chapter. So you know who you need to know who it is that's weak in faith. First, I want to tell you what weak in faith doesn't mean. When it says that there's a believer who is weak in faith, that doesn't necessarily mean they're a new Christian. Because you can have new Christians that are not weak in this area. They have actually a well-informed conscience. And you can actually have people who've been a believer a long time who are weak in certain areas in their conscience. So don't isolate weak in faith to a new baby Christian. That's not always true. It can be true, but it's not always true. As a matter of fact, my experience at the churches I was at, those who were weak in faith in certain gray areas were people who have been Christians for decades, a long time. So weak in faith doesn't necessarily mean a new Christian. Another thing it doesn't mean is somebody, a Christian who's weak in faith, doesn't mean they're weak in faith in every area of life. They might be weak in one gray area, but that doesn't mean they're weak in the 27 other gray areas that I just mentioned. They could actually be right on in all those other areas. And they're actually a resource and very helpful and model and exemplary in helping others who might be weak in other areas. Somebody who has a weak conscience regarding rock music because for 20 years they used to be in a rock band, the lead guitar player, doing drugs and the lifestyle that came with it, and then they get saved, and then they become a Christian, and now every time they see an electric guitar, they just panic. And they associate the electric guitar with evil and Satan and the world and immorality. I have a, a friend who is like that. He came out of that lifestyle, gifted at the guitar. He refuses to pick up a guitar, even in church or personally, because it offends his conscience to do so. And then I just tell him, that's all right. You need to honor your conscience in that regard and not play the guitar. So the weak in faith simply, actually probably a better translation that will help us in terms of the English language is somebody who is sensitive, who has a sensitive conscience or overly sensitive conscience or a prohibitive conscience in a certain area. That's really what it's talking about. So don't look down on a fellow believer who has a prohibitive conscience in a specific area, who has a hypersensitive conscience in a specific area. Don't look down your nose at them saying, well, I'm mature and I understand that it's okay as a Christian that I can drink alcohol in certain, certain circumstances. And this Christian who says you can never have alcohol, they're legalistic. Uh, you're not supposed to look down at them. It says accept them. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. You're not the judge. I'm not the judge. Verse 2. One Christian has faith that he may eat all things. That's the strong Christian. He has a strong, well-informed biblical conscience on that issue. One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only, abstaining from that meat from the idol, abstaining from that pork forbidden in the Old Testament. Verse 3. Let not him who eats regard with contempt the Christian who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. Very important principle in verse 3. Let not him, let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat. This would also apply to holidays because Paul does talk about feast days and holidays. For example, some Christians celebrate Christmas as a time to rejoice. Jesus was born, praise God. Yeah, Jesus was born. Uh, the Magi brought gifts and celebrated the birth of the king. Yeah, that's okay. But there are other Christians who say, no, we shouldn't celebrate holidays. And Jesus, we don't know if Jesus was born on the 25th of December. It's not in the Bible. That's true. It is not in the Bible. We don't know if he was born on the 25th. And Santa Claus is from the devil. Oh, okay, wow. Uh, so Christians will actually debate over that issue. But how you celebrate a holiday needs to be your personal conviction. And you can't look down another believer 
because their conviction that's in a gray area conflicts with yours. That's what he's saying in verse 3. He goes on, verse 4, Who are you to judge the servant of another? You, who are you to judge in gray area matters before God and the conscience of another person, another Christian? So you're in a, the theme all throughout here is judgmental, critical Christians in gray areas and preferential matters. And it goes both ways, the legalist and the one who's permissive. Stop judging each other. Verse 4, who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, he stands or falls. You're accountable to Jesus and stand. He will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Verse 5, one person regards one day above another. See, this is holidays. One man regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. That was Jews who were still making a big deal out of Jewish holidays in the Old Testament. The Passover and these three mandatory celebratory feast days for the Jews. And Paul's saying, well, we don't need to make a big deal about those anymore because Jesus Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament. Every day is a day to celebrate the Lord Jesus Christ who fulfilled all the Old Testament holidays. Don't fight about holidays. Verse 6, He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. That's how You're supposed to do it the right way with the right motives is what he's getting at. Verse 7, for not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Isn't that, that's just a great principle to keep in mind. You're making a big stink and an issue about this gray area preferential matter. And it's all about me, me, me. My needs aren't being met. Blah, 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 blah. And Paul's saying, no, it's not about you. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. What honors him? So that's verse 7 and 8. Verse 9, he goes on, For to this end Christ died and lived again. See, that's the answer to gray area issues, is being Christ-centered, Christocentric. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ, His glory, His priorities. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that He might uh, be Lord both of the dead and the living, of living Christians and Christians who have died and gone to heaven. But you, why do you judge your brother? There it again. He says it again. He's going to keep saying this. Quit judging your fellow Christian because their convictions are different than you in gray areas. Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. See, that was the one thing that helped Debbie and I over the 25 years of our life to evaluate all of our gray area convictions and to see changes. And I mentioned it earlier. We're hoping that we've grown and changed in the area of being merciful and slow to be critical because we realize God has exposed our own sin in our life. We all stumble in many ways. And we have to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the only judge that matters. And He knows everything. And He knows it perfectly and exactly. We have to give an account to Him. That's a fearful judgment. And it helps sanctify our life and our views. So we all have to go before the Lord Jesus Christ. Steve Fernandez actually has a book. He gave me several books. And there's one in the book cart that I really appreciate that he wrote, where he talk, he uses himself as an illustration. And he says when he, he looks back at himself when he was in his 30s, and he, he believed he had an incredibly overly critical spirit as a young man in his 30s. And he just shares that in that little book back there of how God has changed him over time through the hardships of life, exposing his own sin, bringing him humility in his life to be a more gracious pastor today. And God will do that as our judge and through the Spirit in changing us over time. For we shall all 
give account to God. Verse 11, for just as it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each, of, uh, each one of us shall give account of himself to God. He is the judge. We are short-sighted, we are finite, we are fallen. Verse 13, therefore, saying, act on the following principles. Therefore, let us not judge one another. This is the third time Paul has said that. Are you getting the point here? One thing you cannot do in the gray areas and areas of preference in the Christian life, in the body of the church, is to judge other believers. That's what he says. Therefore, let us not judge one another, but rather determine this. There are things we need to do. Not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. So we have to evaluate our life and... And the attitude needs to be, okay, I'm going to be interacting with the corporate body. What can I do? What will I do? What will I say that builds up my other brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ? And is there anything I will do or say that will tear them down or offend them? So you have to live a life, and I have to live a life that is other-oriented. It's not all about me. It's about the other saints in Jesus Christ. So as you pray and think about going to GBF or church, wherever you worship locally, should be praying about it throughout the week, and especially on Saturday, I try to prepare my heart. Okay, God, it's the Lord's Day tomorrow. It's awesome. We get to interact with the saints and uh, give me a spirit. Lead me by your word, by your truth, by your spirit. And also, how can I be a blessing and a servant to the sheep? Instead of just the opposite. How can I get my needs met, being critical and self-serving and judgmental? Uh, we need God's help in that regard. And that's what he says right here. You need to refrain. I need to refrain from putting needless stumbling blocks in front of people. Verse 14. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Now, now he's talking about that meat that was dedicated to an idol. And so he's talking to the stronger brother here and the stronger brother who knows it's okay to eat meat that was dedicated to an idol, uh, but it was dedicated at some pagan temple, but then it ended up in the marketplace and it's good meat. And the strong in faith doesn't have a problem eating that. I mean, it's kind of like when I was in college at Westmont College in Santa Barbara. I had a very good friend who I looked up to was my discipler, and he was an ex-Mormon. He was a Mormon for 16 years. And while we were at college, he found out that the cafeteria food service at this Christian college was owned by the Mormon church. And all of a sudden, he decided one day, he's not going to eat their Cheerios or their milk, or anything else that was served in the cafeteria. And I'm telling them, dude, aren't you on the, the meal plan here? Like your parents paid 2500 bucks for this. Three meals a day for seven days a week. Well, where are you going to eat? I'll just eat a Taco Bell. Well, isn't that like owned by Satanists? So Mormon Satanists. Man, I'm going with the Mormon Cheerios. But anyway, we never saw eye to eye on that issue. But he had a hypersensitive conscience about food in light of his upbringing and his relation to unbelievers. So the Cheerios was, and by the way, the, Cheerio, uh, the Cheerios were not produced by the Mormons. It wasn't made by the Mormons. It was just simply the guys working in the kitchen for six bucks an hour trying to work hard and do their job that he had a problem with. It, or, or, and the, the Mormons that owned the catering company. So that's a, a very specific example that's actually parallel to what Paul's talking about here. Now, don't make an issue about food. The meat is not the issue. Meat is inherently neutral. It is not evil or spiritual. Verse 14, I know and convinced the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in and of itself. That's why I mentioned earlier uh, about the pumpkin. Is it evil for Christians to have a pumpkin at Halloween? Well, in and of itself, a pumpkin is not evil. God made pumpkins and cucumbers and whatever else. So you've got to go a little deeper than that. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. And so I had a very good friend, actually, at a previous church where 
they did not like Halloween. They let me know. They let me know as a pastor and elder. And I, you know what I did? I didn't dismiss them and criticize them. And oh, you're you're weak in faith. How pathetic! You're not invited to my Halloween party, and my kids aren't going to go trick or treating with you. Didn't say that. I honored the conscience of this fellow believer. I honored that. I was like, praise God, you've thought it through. They even went to scripture. And actually pointed out some very convicting passages from the Old Testament. I was like, wow, yeah, I hear what you're saying. I can see that. You know what you need to do? You need to not violate your conscience. And you know what? I'm not going to violate your conscience. I'm not going to be party to violating your conscience in the church here. And we're not going to have a church-sponsored Halloween party. So what do Christians do? They call it Harvest Day. But anyway... And that's what Paul's talking about here. Being sensitive to the other uh, brother or sister uh, in light of this conviction. Verse 15. For if because of food your brother is hurt, the weaker brother, the sensitive brother, you are no longer walking according to love. See, that's the bottom line. You want to flaunt your liberty at the risk of offending another brother who has a conviction in that area. If I've, like my good friend who was a guitar player in a rock band, now that I know what he believes, I'm not going to probably play Stephen Curtis Chapman in my car when he's in the car. Because he's got a problem with that electric guitar. That's fine. We'll listen to uh, opera music. I don't know. I'll have to ask him what his preference is. Here, you bring the CDs, dude, and we'll listen to what you want to listen to. Oh, Barney and Friends? I don't like that. Something else. So, verse 15. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. So love is the issue, right? Love is the fulfillment of the law. Love for your fellow man. Love for your fellow Christian. Love for your body of Christ. Do not destroy with your freedom, with your liberty. Do not destroy with your food. Your exercise of your Christian liberty. Do not destroy him for whom Christ died. This is directly applicable to alcohol. Because alcohol is mentioned in Scripture. There are times you should drink or you should not drink alcohol. It's clear. And some Christians have a prohibitive conscience towards alcohol at all. And, you know, if I was in a restaurant with my wife and I'm the pastor of a church and I'm at a local restaurant and I've got a glass of wine, just having a glass of wine there, maybe it's grape juice. I've got to get a different cup with a straw in it. But if I had a glass of wine, that could offend some believers if they happen to see us there or whatever, because I don't know everybody's personal conviction about alcohol and wine. And some, some people have struggled with alcoholism. And you've got to be sensitive to that and honor that. And I've got to keep my personal convictions personal in my home where I won't needlessly offend fellow believers. That's what Paul is talking about. It's all about being other oriented, fulfilling the the law of love. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. The kingdom of God, Christianity, true spirituality is not about eating and drinking. What does he mean? True spirituality is not about superficial issues of preference. A Christian who wants to debate and argue and be divisive about issues of preference is an immature Christian. So that's what Paul is saying here. Make a clear distinction between biblical matters and preferential issues. The kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. It is about righteousness. That is, you know what that means? True spirituality is about right and wrong. Clearly delineated, scripturally defined right and wrong issues. Sin issues. Holiness issues. That's, that really helps when you're trying to muddle through the gray areas, which can be really challenging and confusing. So keep the right perspective. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace. See that? 
True spirituality is about peace. Having peace between yourself and God. Peace about your conscience and not violating your conscience. And also peace between other believers that you disagree with in areas of preference. Quit the squabbling. You're grieving the Spirit of God. One of the fruits of the Spirit of God in Galatians 5 is peace, right? And when you're squabbling with a fellow believer, you are grieving the Spirit of God. So, true spirituality is about right and wrong issues that are sin matters. It is about peace between God and fellow believers. And it is also about joy, because that's also one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Joy. When you're fighting with other Christians, when you're, or when your conscience is being violated, you don't have joy. There's a lack of joy. Verse 18, For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So, live with the right priorities and you will please Christ. That's what that means. Verse 19, So then, let us pursue the things. Here it is. Here's the action item. Okay. Let us pursue. Let us make a priority. Let us do it with uh, a vengeance, with enthusiasm. Pursue the things that make for peace. There it is. Pursue things and issues and topics that make for peace. That Be a peacemaker. Not a distraction. Not a divisive person. Not nitpicky. Not petty. Be a peacemaker. And also be committed to the building up of one another. Be committed to edifying one another. That's what it means. Encouraging one another. Edifying one another. Uh, living other-oriented towards other people, trying to figure them out, okay, where are their sensibilities and sensitivities? Where do they stumble? Am I violating that? I want to encourage them to honor their conscience, not violate their conscience. Uh, Verse 20, do not tear down the work of God. That means don't tear down a fellow believer, whether he's a weak Christian or a strong Christian. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food, preferential matters. All things indeed are clean. Everything is clean. So there's the categorical declaration from God. All things are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. So the conscience matters. Every single Christian, whether you're weak in faith or strong in faith, one of the golden rules is you should never violate your own conscience, ever. That is a terrible, horrible thing to do. Even if you have a weak conscience, you should never act against your conscience. That's what Paul's, one of his main exhortations here is in all of this. Verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or to drink wine. So it's good to refrain from your liberties at times as a Christian for the good of others. So this is a conversation and exhortation for every believer in the church. It's not just for strong Christians and it's not just for weak Christians. It's everybody. Everybody has a a part to play. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. See, that's one of the key things. Verse 5 and verse 22 are absolutely key Uh, Look at verse 5 again. One man regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Let each man, let each Christian, let each Christian woman, let each Christian child be fully convinced. See, that, that is one of the keys to dealing with gray area issues in your life, in your personal life, in your family life. Verse 5 and verse 22. You've got to start by being fully convinced in your own mind first. Instead of kind of... In a fog and you're not sure, well, is it wrong or not wrong to ever drink alcohol? You have got to search the Scriptures and pray to God and seek His wisdom and godly counsel. And you've got to convince, become convinced in your own mind on all these gray areas of what you think is right for you. Abstaining from alcohol 100% of the time could be the very best thing and the right thing for you before God. And that's why he says you need to be fully convinced in your own mind. And 22... The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. You've got to settle this matter between you and God. It starts there on gray areas. Is it wrong to watch television? Well, let's see. Knowing my lifestyle, the way I think, the distraction it can be, the temptation it can be, 
uh, et cetera, et cetera. It's okay. I have concluded. Actually, Debbie and I came to this conclusion early on in our marriage. We are not going to have television. So we didn't have, we banished the television for years. And then I don't know why we ended up getting a television. I mean, somebody gave us a television. Somebody gave us a television. And they called us a friend. And so after seven years of not watching television, I mean, we turned it on. We were shocked. You talk about our sense, sensibilities. We're just, whoa, I can't believe that rated X commercial. And then you watch enough of those rated X commercials and you become numb to it, don't you? Oh, ho hum. See, that's the danger of it. So you've got to think through all of these issues in your own personal life starting with yourself, your home, and what are your convictions before God going to be? You've got to settle it in your own mind. Uh, Verse 22, Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. Happy is he who does not condemn himself. You know what that means? Happy is the person, blessed is the Christian who doesn't violate his own conscience. Don't violate your conscience. Now, your conscience might be ill-informed. You might be ignorant, naive. You don't have proper biblical theology. You have a horrible upbringing and background, and you haven't landed in the biblical position yet, and yet your conviction isn't matched up with the biblical truth yet, but at the same time, you're in a position where you can't practice a certain thing without violating your conscience, and Paul says, don't violate your conscience. Don't do it. Even if uh, you have the freedom to do it, if it's violating your conscience, do not do it. God may, in time and he may not, He may bring you to a point where you have the freedom and liberty to practice whatever it was and it doesn't violate your conscience anymore because God has grown you over time. But for the time being, never violate your conscience. So when, I, when we watch uh, Pinocchio and there's... Oh, did I say we watch a Disney movie? Oh, my fault. Um, anyway, hope that doesn't cause you to stumble. But Jiminy Cricket, Jiminy Cricket is in, I think it's Pinocchio, and he sings this song. It's actually a horrible song. Let your conscience be your guide. And so we were watching that as a family recently because I don't think I've ever seen Pinocchio until like two months ago. And that is a horribly pathetic theological statement. Let your conscience be your guide. Personally, I don't trust my conscience half the time. And an unbeliever, God forbid, they have a depraved conscience. That is horrible advice. Mr. Mr. Disney's probably turning over in his grave. So on the one hand, that's terrible advice. But on the other hand, in context, that is actually what Paul is saying. He's not saying... Let your conscience be your guide. But what he's saying is do not violate your conscience. There is a difference. Very important. Verse 23. But he who doubts. See, that's when you begin to violate your conscience and the decision that you made. Wow, should I go out with these friends who are going to a club? And and I know I'm not going to drink alcohol, but they're going to a club. And oh, wow, you know, I'm not going to drink. And they're friends and they're Christians. And oh, you're, you're not sure. If, if there is an inkling at all of a hesitation of a doubt that doing that would violate your conscience, the biblical answer is don't. That is black and white. Gray areas are gray areas. What you do in that situation, according to Scripture, is black and white. It is clear. Do not violate your conscience. Do not go. Verse 23, But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So hopefully that was helpful. Paul uh, gives us that chapter in a parallel passage for your later devotional reading or throughout the week if you want to pursue this further. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10. A lot of parallel uh, statements Paul makes and some similar ones and some new ones. Now with that, I just by way of summary, I do want to run through the principles here. And I'm just going to fill in the blanks for you because this is just a summary of all the principles that we just addressed. And as you think through the gray areas in your life, 
And this can be helpful. This is just kind of a litmus test of scriptural truths to help you think through a decision uh, as they come down the pike, gray areas where it's not categorical, black and white. Um, They've been helpful for me, and I didn't make these up. They are from Scripture, and others have taught me these things. Great pastors and Bible teachers over the years. So let's look at A, B, and C. The Bible is sufficient for all of life. The Bible has all the answers. The Bible has answers even to gray areas because it gives us principles to deal with the gray areas, like don't violate your conscience. B, some areas of Christian living are not explicitly addressed by Scripture. These are the gray areas. And we've mentioned many of those. C, the Bible delineates specific principles for addressing gray areas. And that's what we just talked about. And the goal is to preserve unity in the body of Christ and to honor God with your life. As a matter of fact, that great statement, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether then you eat or drink, those are the mundane gray areas of life. Whether then you, that is a summary statement in Paul's discussion about the gray areas, by the way. That's the context. Whether then you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. So let's look at the principles 1 through 11 Paul just gave us out of Romans 14. Uh, number one, recognize people, all Christians actually, all Christians are on, are on all, wait, all recognized people are all on different places of the sanctification spectrum. So we need to be sensitive to that. Every believer is different. They're strong in areas, they're weak in areas. And we are a family. Number two, like all of my four kids, they're all different in different ways. We need to parent accordingly. Number two, do not judge each other. Question, do you have a critical spirit? It's one of the themes that Paul addresses in this chapter. Do not judge each other. Number three, we need to distinguish between personal preferences and biblical mandates or sin issues. We need to distinguish between personal preferences and biblical mandates. Uh, Chapter 14, verse 5a. Number four, Verses 6 through 8. When dealing with the great areas of life and your attitude towards other believers, examine your motives. What's driving this issue? What's driving this concern? What's driving this squabble or conversation? Is it because you want to honor Christ in all things and you want to love your fellow brother and build them up and edify them? Or is it self-serving? Examine your motives. Number five. As you're judging other people in all these areas, because you think you have the spiritual gift of judging, let's keep in mind verses 9 through 12. Every Christian will be judged by Christ. And that great phrase out of James, we all stumble in many ways, don't we? We all, we all stumble or sin and we do it in many ways. We are professional, multi-talented, multitasking sinners, aren't we? So, somebody made a profound statement to me this week just on the fly and they said, you know, some churches have a lot of sinners in them. Some churches, some churches have a lot of sinners. And I was like, wow. I think all churches have sinners. All, everybody there is a sinner. Um, number six, don't cause other Christians to violate their conscience ever if you can willingly or knowingly avoid it. Abstaining from alcohol when you know you need to, etc. Number seven, pursue joy, righteousness, right and wrong and peace, not preferential matters. Right and wrong issues, 17 and 18. Verse 19, number eight, seek to edify others. Edify means build them up. Help them grow. Seek to edify others. Be a peacemaker, not divisive. Uh, number nine is verses 20 and 21. We need to prefer one another. Live oriented, self, I mean, uh, other oriented, not self oriented. Prefer one another. Verse 10, don't violate your conscience. So you don't want to do anything to violate somebody else's conscience, and never do you want to violate your own conscience. 
Number 10, that's Romans 14, verses 5 and 22. I know that I'm weak in certain areas in terms of my conscience because of my background, my upbringing, my finite thinking. I need to change. I need to grow. And my wife knows better than anybody what those areas of weakness are. But I can't stay static and just leave it there. I want to grow. I've got to change. I need God's help to do it. And that's point number 11. Renew your mind. Renew your thinking. You do it with Scripture. We need to inform our minds and how we think with biblical truth. So a weak conscience is an ill-informed conscience. You have wrong information. You're operating on wrong biblical principles. That's why Paul said in Romans 12, the same book, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It starts with your thinking. Biblical truth. So renew your mind with Scripture. Inform your conscience with biblical truth. That's how you grow. That's how you change. That's how you go from weak to strong in your personal convictions before God. And then I'll just conclude with these questions I already have written out for you. They're just great because they're out of 1 Corinthians uh, principles we weren't able to look at. So there's the corresponding verse reference with the question. Just questions you can ask yourself with gray areas. Will it benefit me spiritually? Mom, how much video can I play right now? Can I play for the next four hours? Will it benefit me spiritually? Two, will it bring bondage? Playing video games in and of itself isn't sinful, but it can become addictive, can it? There are a lot of things we do that aren't inherently sinful that can become addictive. Food, shopping, spending money, video games. They become addictive. Will it bring bondage? Will it defile God's temple? What we put in our body or how we use or misuse our body? Never do anything to go against the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is your body. Number four, will it cause a brother to stumble? We've mentioned that one. Will it hinder evangelism, Paul says? If it will, then don't do it. Refrain from it. Will it violate my conscience? And then finally, that great summary statement, 1 Corinthians 10.31. Will the practice, will, sorry, will it bring glory to God? Will it bring, because that needs to be our greatest motivation, all for His Glory. Let's go ahead and pray to the Father for His help that which we so desperately need in these often difficult and great areas of our life. Father, we do thank You for this day and the opportunity to come worship You as the body of Christ. Thank You for every person that You brought here today. God, uh, bless and be with any of our visitors, especially those that are traveling long distance, that You would help them return safely. Thank You that we could come and sing to You. Also, look to Your Word together. God, thank You for the indwelling Holy Spirit who promised to be our comforter, our guide, the one who would lead us into wisdom, the Spirit of truth. Thank You for biblical principles. Thank You for the gift of prayer. Thank You for the godly counsel of other believers. All these resources we have, God, to think through the difficult issues of life. Hopefully to live in a way that honors You. God, if we're weak in our conscience in any area, continue to help us to grow in that area. God, also give us the conviction and discernment to never violate our conscience by what we do so we can have a sensitive and pure conscience before You. May Your hand of blessing be on all these people this day and all this week as we commit it to You. We pray in Christ's name also, Father, for Your glory. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650 630 
0009.